Welcome to the Talberg Foundation podcast series, New Thinking for a New World. Host Alan Stogo welcomes leaders from around the world to explore the issues that are challenging and changing their societies. From climate change to democracy under siege to geopolitics and beyond, we are looking for ideas that can make all our lives better. My guests today are Scott Miller and Josh Steiner. Scott is a seasoned political and corporate consultant. Josh is an investor and former executive at Bloomberg. Both understand American politics as well as anyone. Almost six months ago, we three discussed the State of the Union, the American dream, and how this political year might shape up. You both were basically optimistic that the country would cope, even perhaps cope well, with the stresses of COVID, recession, and deeply partisan politics. So let's start there with the 60,000 foot take of where are we? We, we have Joe Biden apparently won the election. Um, how is the country doing? Scott? Well, Alan, I, I mean, I, I'm very optimistic still, and I think it was uh, a very hopeful election. First of all, the participation at 66% or so is astounding and great. Uh, turned out <laughs> a lot by, by the president uh, and uh, on both sides, uh, his own voters and voters against him in almost equal measure, slightly larger number, obviously, against him. But more, more than that, I think they turned out with real intention and real purpose and went to poll the polls the way Americans sort of traditionally have. I think if you, a generation ago, you know, people would have looked at this election instead of saying this is the most polarized election in our history, they would have said it was a very close race um, still. I'm very optimistic and, and really heartened uh, by the election. As you know, I'm a Trump supporter. I was, I supported him in 16, um, voted for him in 20, but I had a raging case of Trump fatigue myself. And so it was not, not a great, uh, it was not that sorry to see the outcome. And I think the country needed it. I think it simply needed, you know, someone asked me to talk on the other day on the Trump effect. And I said, well, the Trump effect is still going on because I think Joe Biden is part of the Trump effect. I think if you have, you know, a fever and the shakes and St. Vitus dance for four years, you kind of need that slow down, you know, drink lots of water, rest up. And I think that's that's what Joe represents. I think the the participation was great. Sixty six percent of American voters. That was terrific. Um, I think the turnout was great. And I think the American people do what they do so well, which is they're fairly sophisticated about uh, about voting, I believe. And I've never seen them make a mistake given the choices allowed and they presented to them and the information they got. But in this election, I think they intended to return a, uh, a Republican Senate as a kind of shock collar to make sure that Joe doesn't pull too far to the left. I think they refuted uh, group labeling in Texas and Florida. And I'm glad of that. Uh, I think they somewhat refuted woke politics and, and injected some new blood and interesting new blood into the Republican House. Um, and I wasn't sorry to see Nancy Pelosi get, uh, you know, just refuted a bit. And, and finally, I think I'm going to do this analysis later with, uh, with my company, but I believe that they ignored political advertising fairly well, which is, is a, another great, uh, a great thing to say about the American public. Uh, Josh, it's entirely possible that Scott is right, that this is all 
good news. It's also possible that this was an angry election with a lot of very frustrated, depressed, distressed voters desperately trying to hold on to their vision of the country and ending up proving that the country is split down the middle, that it isn't ready for reconciliation. It's ready for my way or the highway, whether you're coming from the right or coming from the left. What do you think? Well, I share Scott's optimism about certain things. And there was one thing he said, which I found uh, deeply distressing, pessimistic, which is the fact that he voted for the president again. You know, I thought when we had our conversation three months ago, he was very cognizant of the damage this president had done to this country. I think he was cognizant of how inept this administration had been about a pandemic that's killed 230,000 plus people. I think he's seen how the president has damaged the institutions that have served this country so well. And so it comes as a shock and a somewhat of a surprise. Makes me slightly less optimistic <laughs> that he chose to vote for him again in 2020. It was one thing to vote for the president in 2016 when one could imagine that the office would reform the man. It turns out that the man was more focused on destroying the office. And we've had evidence of that for four years. So that was a surprise and somewhat distressing to hear. As it relates to the country, the broader issue, I do share some of Scott's optimism about the participation. I think that's very healthy and a very good thing. I think that this election demonstrated one other facet of our society and our culture, which is the civil service did a spectacular job. You know, we can complain about the fact that it took a couple of days to get the official results. But the sheer volume of mail-in ballots relative to any other election cycle was astonishing. And yet in battleground states, with incredible scrutiny, with relatively few months to prepare, our civil service performed really, really well. And that's an admirable quality and something that should give us some reassurance, despite the president's best efforts to undermine the institutions of the government. Well, Josh, hang on. I have to, I have to defend myself just a little, because when I made my vote, I was being deceived by the Democratic pollsters into believing that Joe Biden had an insurmountable double-digit lead. This was about two weeks before the actual election. And I, at the time, I thought it was a protest vote, but it didn't turn out that way. Well, I hear you. And I'm not, you know, it's easy for me to be critical of someone else's choices. And I think you're now, uh, unfortunately, echoing what the president said, which is the fact that the polling numbers um, influence people's votes. And I guess they did in your case. I happen to think that the most appropriate protest vote would be to protest the president's actions of the last four years. And so that's what I was commenting on. But se separating, if I can jump in here, separating Scott's vote, fact is that 70 million-ish plus or minus people voted with Scott uh, that didn't accept the view of the president that you describe, uh, 74, 75, some number like that did. did. Uh, but there quite clearly are a lot of people in this country. This was not an, an election where McGovern gets one state. It's, a, it's an election that's split pretty well down the middle. That's absolutely right. And I think we have to be respectful of their choices. And you hear from me very clearly that I'm not assigning motive to why they chose to vote for President Trump. I don't think it's fair to characterize all those votes in the same manner. P 
people make choices based on very different sets of criteria. And the ones that are most important to me may not be the ones that are most important to them. I think my focus on it, and it's something which I know Scott and I share, is that the form of government matters. And these institutions that we've built up over many years matter. And it's quite conceivable I prioritize those more highly than other people do. And there's certain aspects of the president's policies, which I understand appeal to people in ways that they don't necessarily appeal to me, or that I prioritize those much less highly than other people do. So my comment was not about whether people made informed choices. My comment was not about the motivations that drove them to make those choices, um, because I think people um, do prioritize different things. Um, I happen to think that this vote was extraordinarily important in terms of reestablishing the norms that have been the traditions of the office of the presidency for many, many decades. Well, one of those norms, though, is the is the isolation and insulation of the establishment elite, and I think that's still alive and well. Our, you know, our we need Smith dot com uh, polling. Our last poll was obsolete because it was done in January, but at that time, we saw a lot of reasons why Trump supporters continued to support him in spite of his abhorrent behavior and and pathetic, uh, you know, self loathing personality. But at the same time, they would look at broad economic growth. We looked at economic confidence numbers that had been 10 years in the red, negative. Is next year going to be better than this year? For 10 years, it was lagging by 15, 20 points. Will our kids, will your kids do better than you've done for 10 years? That was 15, 20 points in the negative. And in January, both were up by 15. He swung it by 30 points with this strong economic growth, and it was broad and strong. Some people voted for energy independence and said, this is something we've always talked about and never thought we'd achieve. Some people felt that, you know, that the Middle East uh, uh, moves that he has made, partly to take the uh, Palestinian uh, issue off the table for a moment and begin to build coalitions towards peace. So I think there was, you know, support for the military. There were all sorts of issues that, that helped various groups. I agree with you. Josh, that it's not, you can't just paint all you know Trump supporters in one way or even Biden supporters either, but it was it was a tough race. I must say, if you look at the the turnout and the vote over time from the time the campaign began, Joe began this campaign as he has begun every campaign uh, in his in his political life, which is with the highest numbers at the very beginning of the campaign when he announces. He began to slowly a glide path down toward toward a 50 50, uh, where I, I do believe he was up uh, by 15 points, by 10 points, by eight points uh, and, and going down. But but I think there, there was, uh, you know, this wasn't a, an ebullient Democratic electorate uh, totally. This was not Barack Obama, it's Joe Biden. I mean, so. I think there was some lack of enthusiasm there, too. So the question is the consequence. Uh, we will somehow get from here to there, that is to say, the inauguration. Uh, the lawyers will make a, a bit of money in the process, and, and I'm sure we'll see some protests hither and, and, and yon. Uh, but I'm also sure that, that President Biden will take office. What are the consequences, do you think, of the nature of the campaign the nature of President Trump, the nature of the the real 
sharp debate, the, the, the extremes that have been so evident in, in recent weeks? Well, I think the vice president and the president-elect did a nice job the other night when he began to talk about how the nation needs to heal. Um, and I think he is, by temperament and by history, someone who cares deeply about both the nation and the institutions of government. He has spent his entire career working in furtherance of those institutions. And I think he believes that they can be a powerful source of good. So his job now over the transition, and he's starting obviously with the most serious problem that we face in the form of addressing the pandemic, is to help the American people change their perception of what the federal government can do relative to the past eight months. You know, with good reason, I think Americans doubt whether in fact the government can play an effective job in addressing on a national level this serious pandemic. The response out of Washington has been so episodic and so irrational out of this administration that people have reason to doubt it. So the fact that he's taking that on first, I think will be important to reestablishing a sense of trust that the government actually can help and can serve as it has throughout most national crises in the past. That's on his side. And then on the side of the president, um, President Trump has to decide. You know, one of the greatest traditions in our country is that transfer of power, that image of the two presidents on the balcony of the Capitol as they go out and recognize that the peaceful transfer of power is the hallmark of our democracy. Um, I'm quite sure the president-elect is going to be there. I'm quite sure the president-elect is going to talk about healing. Um, but in this particular institution, this particular transition, it takes two to tango. And I think the Republicans have to decide whether they're more fearful of President Trump or they're more fearful of undermining one of the greatest traditions in our country. And to date, at least, unfortunately, a number of them have chosen um, to back President Trump as opposed to care deeply about this institution. Scott, do you think the president, President Trump, is going to show up for the inauguration of Joe Biden? Yeah, I do. But I'm, I'm, I only think so because he's going to be caring a lot about preserving his brand and and uh, and, you know, going forward. I, I think he'll come to that determination. I think the support you're hearing from other Republicans, which is pretty, um, pretty thin right now, is simply saying we need to, you know, to, really on behalf of those 70 million people who cast their votes for Trump to say, yeah, know that there was no, uh, you know, undue corruption or defrauding of, of the voting. And I think that'll be discovered rather quickly. Every, everyone that I've heard from says, yeah, you're going to turn up 20 votes here and 100 votes there, and it's going to be nothing. Um, but going through the process, I think that's what those Republicans are, are talking about. And I think they, I think he's going to find himself very, very alone in the bunker, <laughs> you know, as, as this happened uh, toward the end. And I think he'll, he, he's, he's not an idiot. And I think he'll know that to preserve his brand, he needs to, uh, to show grace and civility. Um, and it, and I, I honestly, I, Josh, I think he will. Um, and, and I agree with you very strongly. I think the American people are completely exhausted on, on both sides. And I think less, I, I do see less division than many people do. I think of, you know, an analogy of kids in their bedroom upstairs, listening to their parents fight it out in the kitchen. And then they're throwing things and, you know, expletives and breaking things. And 
kids pull the covers up, but then they want to go out the window. And I think that's the way our exhausted majority of Americans are right now. I think they really need a rest. And I think that's what President-elect Biden promises. He's a good man. Like you said, Josh, I, I, I've known him. I've worked with him. Um, I opposed him. But I, but you know, I, I, I see his strong points, and I hope that he's able to to uh, use those, as he says. His motto is results, not not revolution, and I think that's exactly what we need now. And and I think you're right about COVID nineteen. That's a great start because it was as much as anything a metaphor or a way of understanding, perspective, a point of view on how to understand leadership. Uh, and I think the American people. Uh, we're not satisfied with the leadership that uh, that they got. There is obviously a progressive wing in the Democratic Party. Uh, some could say there's a radical wing in the Democratic Party. The president-elect has very narrow margins in the Congress. How influential, Josh, do you think the left of the Democratic Party is going to be? So I think we should be careful labeling, because I think, unfortunately, that does exacerbate the problem that Scott was describing and the one that you were describing as well, Alan. It's really tempting to assign labels to different groups within the different parties. What's interesting is I think one of the things this election showed, and we've heard it before, is there is some alignment between what you might describe as the more progressive wings of the Democratic Party and certain elements of the Republican Party. I don't happen to think that's aligned with what a Republican-controlled Senate would do, however. So if you take something like the wealth tax, the wealth tax actually polls quite highly across both parties, because I think both parties are concerned about income inequality and have real reservations about how that's been exacerbated over the last 20 years. That's not a policy I happen to support the wealth tax, but the fact that you do find support for it across both parties suggests to you that some of the labels that we've traditionally used to characterize different parts of the party may be a little bit less relevant than which elements of commonality they share from a policy perspective. As it relates to the Democratic Party itself, um, I think that the more progressive parts of the party are going to be pushing hard, and they should. They've been important voices for change. Um, they've been important voices on the environment. They are clearly, as they should be, focused on the questions of income inequality. This isn't a question of whether people within the Democratic Party differ on the objectives. There are maybe some differences about the most effective ways of addressing it. Well, I think the, it's compelling uh, on from at, at least uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, she's presented ideas, and she and among the ideas she's presented is that the Democratic Party has been incompetent in running elections, and that's a fair one too. So, so have the Republicans. She didn't mention that, but that's true too. My late colleague and partner. Pat Cadell used to say the Democrats are the corrupt party and the Republicans are the stupid party. And I think both of them have have to come uh, to a reckoning with new ideas. The old ones are not working. Uh, the, the way they run campaigns is not working. You look at the amount of money that was wasted on both sides, um, probably a billion dollars flushed that had no effect. $109 million trying to get Lindsey Graham out of office. And as I said, I believe the voters were determined to keep a Republican majority, even though they were determined to uh, to put Joe Biden in the White House. Um, you know, $100 million spent on House races by the Democrats, and again, a net loss there. So I, those things are, are kind of heartening to me because I think 
when we look at the things that need to be changed, we obviously our reliance on this campaign system of spending money uh, has to be changed and addressed and campaign funding has to be addressed. Uh, all, all those things, polling has to be addressed simply by saying, by let's ignore it and, and, and use it in much smarter ways. So all, I, I think, I think there need to be new ideas. And I, I agree with Josh that I, I think they do come from both in, ends of the spectrum and, and, and have to be, that's what democracy is about. But let me push on both of you because it's hard to look at the makeup of this incoming Congress or perhaps the incoming administration and expect great change in the first hundred days or the first two years. We have essentially a hung Congress. We have um, a, a very competent, very experienced president, um, probably has to resort to executive power to execute anything. Uh, given that the Congress, our experience with divided Congress in the recent past, and Scott, you said this at the start, you think people want a divided Congress, want paralysis. New ideas are one thing, but how, how do they get from ideas to action in this political space? Josh, what do you think? Well, look, you're clearly right that this is not going to be, assuming we stay with a Republican-controlled Senate, this is not mm -hmm. going to be an administration characterized by broad, new, sweeping legislation. Having said that, I think there's still a meaningful chance we get some form of stimulus done. I think there is a possibility on the legislative front that certain issues will unite this Congress, infrastructure being probably the best example. Now, infrastructure has been an issue that's been on the table for at least a decade. And for whatever set of reasons, we haven't been able to reach consensus around it. But I think that's at least possible. And then you get to the point about executive authority. And I think that's going to be very important. And I think it has to be. But if you take something which is at the top of the priority list for Democrats of all stripes, I think for many Republicans as well, which is climate change, there are a whole series of actions that can be undertaken through the EPA and by executive order, which would have a meaningful impact on how this country addresses this really unbelievably important issue. And the president-elect has already said that it's one of his four largest priorities. If you look at the issues around racial justice and policing reform, the Justice Department can clearly play a very influential role. Um, in both of those issues, and I think has demonstrated in the past a willingness to do that. So take those two as just examples. Then if you look on the economic front, um, an issue that's obviously of concern to both Democrats and Republicans in different ways, issues around antitrust and competitiveness, especially in technology, um, that's something that you can certainly address portions of it through legislation, but a lot of it's about enforcement. And so the Justice Department, again, is going to be deciding what's their approach to antitrust and to competitiveness within not just the technology industry, but across all industries. So those are three big examples of things where you may see very meaningful action by the Biden administration to address what I think the electorate and I think electorate across the board think are important issues. The other important issue is the judicial system. Uh, one of the biggest accomplishments, of course, of the Trump government has been the amazing number of federal judges that have been appointed and, and passed by the Senate not the least the change in the Supreme Court. How does the new administration address that? Well, I think you can only address so many things at once. I think, as Josh said, you know, the, the, the new Department of Justice uh, will have a, a different effect and a different influence uh, than this one has had, obviously, and the president will have a different influence. But when we talk about legislative action, 
uh, and priorities. We got to look at reality. The Democrat or Republican presidents generally get one thing from this Congress. One thing. They get about 40 days work. It was Obamacare. It was Trump's tax reform, but nothing else. And then they, then they go back to raising money and spending money on campaigns. And I think if, if Joe's going to get one, it'll probably be infrastructure, which is one that would have very broad support. I think he'll have to look for, um, you know, progress on, on, on climate in other ways, as Joshua was also saying, through the APA, through other, through executive orders. Um, but he's, uh, you can't look to the, the Congress for, for progress beyond one thing. And they'll give him one thing. And in, in fact, Obama's practically eight years and they only gave him one thing. Well, each of those one things were achieved with a, a single party control of both houses. And that doesn't exist. So do you even get one thing? But let me ask a different question. And that is, and perhaps the nuclear question is this. One can imagine and one heard, has heard all sorts of rumors about potential criminal and civil cases to be brought against President Trump. Obviously, some of those have been percolating along in New York and elsewhere for some time. Is there a circumstance where President Biden may have to think about whether or not he pardons President Trump? I'll let the Trump supporter answer that question, Scott. I would say you would know better than me, Josh, because I don't know what, what the plans are. I, I You know, uh, it, it would be a, a colossal mistake, um, but uh, I don't mind colossal mistakes from either party because I don't like either party. <laughs> so I'm, uh, uh, that's that's my opinion. I, I don't know how much energy and and, uh, and credible force there is to it. Well, what do you think, Josh? Look, I think one of the mistakes that this administration made was confusing politics and our judicial process. And I think one of the most important things that all of us can do is to help reestablish the independence, the legitimacy of the law enforcement community and the judicial process. So my answer to your question, Alan, is that uninformed people like me should make it a habit of not commenting on judicial matters and law enforcement investigations. And we should let the people who have the expertise and the knowledge um, to pursue those cases, pursue them. And as the saying goes, uh, take them where the facts lead them. And they should do that. And then ultimately, um, we're going to know a lot more once that takes place. But I think we really should try to separate politics um, from the law and let the law and law enforcement resume its rightful role um, within our process and be left alone. So you would have advised President Ford not to pardon President Nixon? That wasn't the question that you asked me. You asked the question that I would have said at the time, obviously, was I wouldn't have fired Archibald Cox. That's the point. And I think the, the mistake that this president made and continues to make in trying to um, have the Justice Department act as a vehicle for his own political whims and aspirations, that's a terrible mistake. And that's the same mistake that President Nixon made when he tried to interfere with the Saturday Night Massacre. So my view is we should continue what has been a long tradition, infrequently but unfortunately broken by a few presidents, of trying to exert presidential control on those kinds of serious law enforcement matters and let them run their course. And once they've run their course, we'll know more. And then it's a whole separate decision about what's the right thing to do for the national good and how to heal our country.
And I'm, I'm quite sure that, you know, President Biden would have no interest and give no, um, you know, give no personal uh, encouragement to, to that kind of, of chasing the president if it comes from the Congress or comes from the, uh, you know, from his administration, because I, I, I just think, you know, for the same reasons, <laughs> you know, Donald Trump didn't lock up Hillary Clinton. I mean, it was that thing died, you know, the day the election was over. And I, I, I hope this does too. But I, and if, if there's serious, I agree with Josh, if there's serious uh, issues that I don't know about, great, let the, let the experts take care of it. If it looks like a political witch hunt, which a lot of the past four years actions seemed like, um, then, you know, then no, that would be too bad. And it, and it would re- reflect really badly on Joe. And I don't want that. What, what is the future of Trumpism? And is this something that will have passed uh, as soon as we get over all of the emotions of the moment? Well, my point of view is that Trump was necessary only because there was, you know, change was necessary, fairly radical change. Um, And uh, a huge number of the American people, a huge percentage of the American people needed to believe that somebody was taking on the elite establishment. By the way, I'm not sure he did. He certainly bothered them, but I don't think he really made a great, great deal of progress. Um, so I, I, I think Trumpism will fade, but uh, I think that some of it, you know, nationalism, some of the nationalistic uh, policies that he had, populism, uh, some of those issues will go forward. He, look, this is this past President Trump, if we're going to speak of him in the past tense, um, he's the first anti-war president in my lifetime. Uh, so there, there are going to be people who really do support some of his issues, energy independence, um, broad economic growth, uh, I, 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 you know, some, some of what he's done in, in the Mideast and, in the, and against China. Those things will have support. So if you want to call that Trumpism, uh, I, I think the fact that they're labeled Trumpism will fade, but I think that some of the policies will, will continue. What is the lingering consequence, do you think, of, of the presidency of Donald Trump? If we're talking about this a year or two or three from now, uh, when the passions have faded and when perhaps the president uh, visibility has faded. Well, the, the fear I have is that you have a generation of politicians who look at elements of why President Trump was successful and believe that if they apply those aspects to their own careers and to their own campaigns, they too will be successful. And those unappealing elements, which are appealing to the baser instincts of the country to use rhetoric and language, which is disconnected with the facts, to incite people in ways that are unhealthy, that would be very unfortunate. If to Scott's point, the lesson is that we need to take a more expansive view of the issues of concern to the country, if we need to rethink certain conventional wisdoms, which may not have served us well domestically or internationally as well as before, um, that's a source of potential optimism to expand our view of the art of the possible. Um, and, you know, the Abraham Accords probably are the best example of that, certainly as it relates uh, to foreign policy. I don't think that it's realistic to say that they succeeded because he ignored the interests of a two-state solution. I think it would have been possible to do both. 
but it is some sense of comfort that he was able to help rewrite the map of alliances within the Middle East. And we should recognize those things as successes when they occur. If in fact, what happens though, people take away only the populist, only the authoritarian messages of it, that will be a very unfortunate time for any politician who decides to pursue it. And if they are successful, unfortunate for our country writ large. Thank you. And, and thank you as well, Scott. I think this is a perfect point, which is it's possible to have these kinds of serious conversations without screaming at each other and using language that ought to be restricted to bars and football games, not civil society. And I appreciate both of your efforts, not just with us in these conversations, uh, but in the rest of everything you do. So thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Alan. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Thinking for a New World podcast. We welcome your comments and please subscribe to other episodes in the podcast app of your choice. This podcast was made possible with the generous support of the Stavros Niarchos Foundation.